Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about some of Bach's early works for organ. Dating the early Bach organ works has always been somewhat of a problem. There are a few surviving manuscripts in Bach's hand and dates of composition have mostly been determined on stylistic grounds, decisions often being based on how mature the works seem to be or as one noted Bach scholar put it, how competent a particular work appeared to be, something that might well vary depending on the eyes and ears of the beholder. For the purpose of this episode, we're going to focus mostly on works composed before Bach accepted the position of court organist and chamber musician at Weimar in 1708 at the age of 23, or in other words, works composed while living in Ordruf under the tutelage of his brother Johann Christoph, or while working as an organist at Arnstadt and Mühlhausen. We'll begin with the free works, not based on a traditional German chorale melody, and look first at a colorful prelude in fugue in C major, BWV 531, dated as early as 1705. The prelude begins with a formidable solo for the pedals, although the low bass notes of the organ are usually doubled by higher octave stops in performance, as they will be in my examples. Before we hear Bach's pedal introduction, we're going to listen to a few other comparable introductions by other composers for comparative purposes. This is the opening to a prelude in fugue in D minor by Pachelbel. The pedal begins the work with a distinctive and atmospheric theme, which gradually descends after a dramatic leap of a minor sixth halfway through the first bar, and combining eighth notes and sixteenth notes immediately begins to develop the four-note motive that began with that leap. After four bars, the theme launches into a long pedal point on the tonic, very typical of the composer, while the theme is then picked up first in the left-hand manual and then in the right. Pachelbel was, of course, one of the most important organists of his day and an important influence on J.S. Bach, who might have had some access to his scores through his brother, Johann Christoph, who had himself been a student of Pachelbel. While opening pedal solos of this sort would have been a somewhat rare event for Pachelbel, they would have been more common in the organ works of Buxtehude, an even more powerful influence on Bach, at least in regard to his free organ works. Here is the pedal solo which opens Buxtehude's Prelude in C major. It's seven bars long, embellished with some punctuating chords starting in the fourth measure, and quite busy and dramatic, yielding eventually to some descending scale-based flourishes and, after that, to a main thematic idea with which it has very little connection. <laughs> Thank you. 
Here's another pedal introduction, this time from Buxtehude's Prelude and Fugue in E minor. It's shorter, only two and a half bars long, but it gets to the point right away, announcing a version of the theme that is to dominate the entire texture before lapsing into a tonic pedal. One final example of the sort of pedal-based introduction that may well have influenced Bach, this one from Georg Berm, a composer with whom Bach was very familiar. He may actually have been his student briefly while at Ordruf, and whose music he clearly admired. The work is Berm's Prelude and Fugue in C major, and it begins, according to the score, with a simple chord in both manuals before launching into the pedal solo. But in the performance I'm going to play, the performer first improvises a little descending scale flourish to catch the listener's attention, by no means an unusual strategy. The opening pedal solo is a long one, 12 bars, before being interrupted by punctuating chords. It begins by simply arpeggiating the C major tonic chord, but as it proceeds, it slips into not only dominant chord arpeggios, but even outlines secondary dominant chords, that is, chords which sound like and function like the dominant of the chord which follows them. Even after the opening solo, the pedal part remains active, chiming in with distinctive repeated rhythmic patterns against the punctuating chords from the manuals. Now let's hear Bach's pedal-based introduction to his Prelude in Fugue in C major. Bach's introduction here resembled both Buxtehude's and Berm's, especially the latter's, in its rhythmic consistency. 
mostly sixteenth note patterns, with a few beats of eighths followed by two sixteenths mixed in. Even more so than in the example from Berm, Bach's introduction is for the first three measures restricted to fanfare-like leaps between notes of the tonic C major chord. In bar four, Bach moves to a figuration pattern in sixteenths in which he suggests the subdominant chord, F major, on beats one and three, and then, as he extends the pattern further, he outlines the dominant chord, and even briefly, a secondary dominant type chord as he moves back to the subdominant. The last two bars of the introduction are notable for two things. The harmonic rhythm picks up at the end, and Bach inserts an unusual written-out trill in the pedals just before landing back on the tonic. Once the opening pedal solo has concluded in Berm's prelude, and the right hand and left hand parts are introduced, he continues some of the patterns introduced in the pedal, but quickly expands into other completely contrasting ideas. In Bach's prelude, the ideas heard in the pedal introduction are also continued briefly, but it's not long before new, scale-based ideas are introduced in the left hand against the triadic motives, although as you're going to hear in my example, the pedal arpeggios do make a return appearance when the right and left hands drop out briefly. Here is a slowed-down version of the left hand and right hand parts as they enter in measure 10 in Bach's prelude. The remainder of the 40-bar prelude moves freely from one idea to another. Figuration patterns of different sorts are common in the upper voices, with the pedal occasionally providing a strong descending line against them. Other figuration patterns unfold in gradually descending sequences in sixths and thirds or in three or four note bursts. Changes in texture come frequently, with the pedal all but disappearing for several measures at a time and the primary melodic activity restricted to the treble clef. Cadenza-like descending scale patterns of 32nd notes become more frequent in the final measures of the prelude, which ends with an embellished fermata on the tonic chord. Here is the remainder of the prelude beginning after the pedal introduction.
The fugue is built on a two-measure subject based on a flow of sixteenth notes starting on the fifth of the scale with a descending line embedded within it. The first bar begins after a sixteenth note rest on G, which then plummets down an octave and then bounces right back up and repeats the G, alternating with its upper neighbor. The whole pattern is then repeated a step down on F. Here's what it sounds like in a slowed down version. By the way, there was one passage in the prelude that featured a similar octave drop and rebound, so there is something of a motivic connection between the two sections, even if the comparable passage in the prelude is heard in a very different harmonic context and goes by quickly. The second part of the fugue, starting on E, also features a large descending leap in its first two sixteenth note patterns, but the leap now shifted to a different part of the beat, is down a sixth to a G, the beginning of a triadic outline, with a couple of connecting passing tones, of the tonic chord. Beats three and four break from the triadic pattern, but stick closely to the notes of the same chord. So, if the first measure of the fugue implies a dominant chord, a bit unusual, the second measure quite clearly implies a tonic C major chord. Here's just the second measure. The imitation begins in measure 3, where the so-called alto voice enters on the tonic. The soprano voice continues on with counterpoint against it. Not a proper counter-subject exactly, but elements from it do return in counterpoint with the subject a number of times, notably a new dotted eighth sixteenth note figure that sounds like this. Okay, let's hear the first 16 bars of the fugue. After the alto's entrance down a fifth, which puts it back on C, the tonic, there is a one-bar break in the invitation, and then, in the left hand, the tenor comes in at the original pitch level of G, although its version of the subject is slightly different. After another single-bar interruption, the bass enters, in the left hand rather than the pedals, which have been silent to this point, back on C. Following the bass's imitation, we encounter an interesting little episode which quotes some of the earlier motives, but also introduces some new ones, notably a series of suspended dissonances in the top voices. At the end of my example, you heard a slightly different version of the subject introduced and echoed almost immediately up a sixth, but it's really a false start. 
The original version of the subject pops up a little later, now in G major in the bass, but Bach is not ready to resume serious imitation at this point. Instead, we hear another, more rhythmically active set of suspensions. This leads us to the first appearance of the foot pedals, which make a dramatic entrance with a series of octave leaps, descending and ascending, which of course reminds us of the original subject, and in fact leads us into a return of the original subject in the soprano voice, back on the original pitch level of C against block chords in the other voices. Is this the start of a new exposition or round of imitative entries? Well, not quite. The subject is soon repeated by the soprano, starting on the second half of the measure this time, but the other voices do not rise to the occasion, although some clever new syncopations are introduced in another episode of Eight Bars, where Bach introduces some surprising chromaticism, and we wander temporarily into first A minor and then D minor. But we're soon back to C major, and a variant of the subject is introduced again, but this time in the pedals. Let's hear the first part of the episode leading up to the entrance of the pedals with the fugue subject. Once again, an actual exposition with multiple fugal answers eludes us for a while, but we do eventually encounter something very much like it. The soprano voice enters with the first bar of the subject on C, the second bar somewhat modified to fit the new harmonic circumstances. The bass overlaps it after half a measure with its first bar more or less intact. After a couple of measures, the subject enters on D in the left hand in more or less complete form. Two and a half measures after that, the subject is heard again back to its original pitch. As we approach the end of the fugue, rising sequences, some of which you heard at the end of my example, dominate our attention much more than the subject, to which they're somewhat related, and the final measures end with brilliant, toccata-like flourishes over a dominant pedal before the final embellished tonic chord. 
We're going to turn now to Prelude and Fugue at E minor, BWV 533, perhaps composed as early as 1705, sometimes referred to as the Cathedral Prelude and Fugue, and probably more often as the Little Prelude and Fugue in E minor. This time, the prelude does not begin with a solo in the pedals, although the pedals are assigned a fairly important role as the prelude proceeds. Instead, the manuals begin by presenting a series of four-note motives in sixteenth notes, usually triadic in nature, but with some scale-wise fragments as well, chasing each other around from the right hand in the treble clef to the left hand in the bass clef and back again. The texture is quite thin at first, but the harmonic implications are clear enough. Tonic triads are prominently outlined, but dominant and subdominant chords are represented as well. After a couple of measures, the four-note motives are replaced by longer scale-wise passages tumbling down over two octaves. Here's what it sounds like. At this point, the flow is interrupted by a very dramatic gesture, a written-out, harmonized, 64th-note trill of sorts, initially back and forth between the leading tone and the tonic chord, but based on the notes of a diminished triad when it occurs again a bar later. This is the sort of dramatic interruption that can sometimes be found in Buxtehude's preludes, and a little less likely in Berm's as well. Between the two trill-like explosions, you got a glimpse of another important motive in the right hand. Since this new motive becomes more important as we proceed, I want to draw a little more attention to it. It's another four-note motive in sixteenth notes, like those that began the prelude, but with a different and rather distinctive shape, initially moving up by half-step, dropping down a third, and then moving up by half-step again. Here's a slowed-down and simplified example of it. This new motive and the trill-like motive both continue to play a role as we head to A minor and we encounter our next major new idea. The rhythmic momentum slows down somewhat here with the 32nd note activity replaced by slower moving but still rhythmically distinctive patterns of powerful block chords against a series of suspensions with ornamented resolutions, heard first in the pedal but then migrating to the right-hand manual although it must be admitted that these suspensions tend to get lost in the thickness of the black chord texture. This new idea continues for some time as Bach gets more active chromatically 
introducing a series of secondary dominant chords, but I was reporting back to E minor after two or three measures of flirting with other tonal centers. Eventually, attention is shifted from the suspensions to a series of offbeat chords which touch on both B major and A minor, and then to the increased level of activity in the pedals, which periodically interrupt the offbeat patterns. In the last four bars, earlier ideas do return, notably the written-out 32nd note trill, as well as the third motive, which I played a simplified example of earlier. Here is the conclusion of the prelude. It's an interesting prelude to be sure, but not the most carefully integrated one, at least not by Bach's later standards, featuring as it does some rather drastically divergent thematic ideas, as well as some clearly related ones. But of course you can't apply Bach's later standards at this point. You can't expect an earlier work like this to be as completely and smoothly coherent as one of the preludes from the Well-Tempered Clavier, for example. Bach is, at this point, quite understandably, heavily under the influence of Buxtehude's flamboyant style, and perhaps Berm's and others as well. So it should be no surprise that he is pursuing and achieving some striking rhetorical effects. And we should also take note of the well-known Bach scholar Peter Williams' comments when he says of Bach's earlier organ works that deliberate disunity between sections is not necessarily a fault. On to the fugue. The subject is just two bars long, with the first bar being the most notable. It begins on the fifth of the E minor scale, coming in on an eighth note on the second half of beat one, the and of one. It goes to a quarter note, still on B, decorated by a mordant. The second half of the measure duplicates the first. While the mordant on each of the quarter notes catches the ear, it is the offbeats in the first measure which tie the subject back to the prelude. You'll recall the section in the prelude dominated by conspicuous offbeat chords. The second bar of the subject also starts on the offbeat, but then proceeds with a series of eighth notes outlining an E minor tonic chord, with some passing tones linking up the notes of that triad. Here is a slowed down, simplified version. Since the subject originally entered on the fifth of the scale in the so-called tenor part, the top voice in the left hand, 
it's common for the first answer to come in a fourth lower on the tonic, and that's what happens here in the bass, the lowest voice in the left hand. Continuing against that invitation, the tenor part provides a counterpoint which, like the subject itself, is fairly sparse and rhythmically distinctive. By measure 5, the initial invitation has been completed and the tenor part continues on with a motive based on a sequentially ascending pattern starting with an eighth note leaping up a fourth to a sixteenth note and then right back down again. A motive clearly derived from the first measure of the counter subject I just played. Here's that new, but not so new, idea in the tenor line. As the tenor line I just played finishes up, the soprano enters halfway through measure six with the subject up an octave and with a counter subject similar to the first. Two measures later, the subject enters again in the alto, back on tonic once more. Finally, two and a half bars later, and after a modulation to B minor, the pedals jump in with the subject on F sharp, the fifth scale degree in the new key of B minor. Let's hear that much. Right at the end of my example and after the imitation in the pedals has played out, you can hear the beginning of a slightly more substantial episode which employs motives we've already encountered, especially the sequentially rising figure of an eighth followed by two sixteenths, moving against a rising chromatic line beneath it. Soon the subject reappears on the original pitch and the bass line, but now accompanied and partially obliterated by black chords in the right hand. After another transition, using mostly familiar motives, the subject returns, much more audibly, in the soprano voice on E. But again, no other voice responds to the challenge, at least not right away, although the alto makes a half-hearted attempt a few measures later. As we draw near to the end of the fugue, Bach introduces a series of suspensions that resemble to some extent a comparable passage heard in the prelude. And then we move to the final measures with one last reminder of the fugue theme in the pedals before the final cadence. Here is the last section of the fugue beginning with that series of suspensions.
This is, as Malcolm Boyd points out, a tightly organized fugue, which refuses to get sidetracked at the last minute with any toccata-like flourishes, which some of Bach's other early fugues were prone to do. We're now going to turn to perhaps the only early fugue which Bach composed probably around 1706 or 1707 that might reasonably be considered well-known, the so-called Little Fugue in G minor, BWV 578. It begins with a classic fugue subject. What is it exactly that makes this theme so effective, so memorable? I think it's obvious that analysis, any sort of analysis, doesn't necessarily help us answer that question. But let me suggest a few things. The five-bar subject which starts on G and is heard first in the soprano is relatively simple but rhythmically distinctive, picking up rhythmic momentum as it goes by moving to faster and faster note values. Starting in the third bar, we encounter a familiar pattern, on the beat, the melodic motion marches up the scale from G. On the offbeat, we keep returning back to the same note, D. So even though we don't really make a lot of melodic progress, we just move up three steps and then come right back down, the rhythmic energy never flags. The third measure is just a variation of the second, but again, the rhythmic activity has been escalated. Now instead of encountering mostly eighth notes, we experience mostly sixteenth notes, as we surge into the fifth measure, which turns out to be all sixteenth notes, and which carries us right into the countersubject, which is itself made up mostly of sixteenth notes. So in other words, this is a simple, somewhat repetitive theme, but one that displays a great deal of forward momentum, almost a sense of surging ahead, as well as an unusually clear sense of direction, both melodically and harmonically, although the harmony is really quite simple, mostly just an alternation between tonic and dominant chords. After the subject, the invitation proceeds in a very straightforward manner, no real surprises. The first invitation comes in at the fifth in the alto, although sounding an octave lower, in what appears initially to be D minor. After a brief break in the imitative action, there's a brief episode based largely on the counter subject, after which the second answer appears, halfway through the measure in the left hand back on G, and it folds against a variant of the original counter-subject. Following this, and back in D minor, the subject is presented in the pedals, against which the right hand introduces a new feature, a sustained trill. Let's hear that much.
At the end of my example, after the emphatic cadence on D minor, you heard the beginning of a slightly longer episode that combines two ideas, both repeated sequentially, to direct us back to G minor. There the subject recurs in the left hand, or at least the first measure of it. It breaks off in favor of an interpolated measure, based loosely on the countersubject, before picking up again, this time in the right hand. It continues against a bass pedal on the dominant before moving toward the new tonal center of B-flat major, in which the subject is again introduced along with a familiar countersubject. After another brief episode, the pedals deliver the subject as well, and we then head toward a more tonally adventurous passage, which uses descending sequences to take us first in the direction of A-flat major and then later C minor. At this point, the texture lightens somewhat as the subject returns in the right hand. Often in a Bach fugue, a less distinctive subject can, as the piece proceeds, sneak back into the texture, which is so often quite complex in Bach style, and almost not be noticed at first. But in this case, the subject is so distinctive and memorable that every appearance is likely to be clearly noted by the listener, even when interwoven into a complex contrapuntal texture. Perhaps because of that, Bach takes a great deal of care to inject new elements against the subject when it reappears, and in this case, that new element is a very active contribution from the pedals. It's really just a new version of an older figuration pattern, but of course, it sounds quite a bit different in the low range of the pedals. After this surge of activity in the pedals, they drop out of the picture for some time, as various sequential patterns begin to direct us back to G minor, aided and abetted by suspensions at the top of the texture, right before the final return of the subject, in the pedals again, which takes us to the end of the piece. Let's hear from the modulation to C minor and the figuration pattern in the pedals to the conclusion. I mentioned earlier that the G minor fugue was one of few among Bach's early works for organ that could be said to be well known. But of course, there is one other early work for organ that is exceedingly well known. Mm -hmm. 
The piece, of course, is the Toccata and Fugue in D minor, BWV 565, of which you just heard the opening Toccata. It's a famous work, and was so even before being immortalized in an orchestral version in Disney's original Fantasia film. It's certainly a work of great dramatic intensity, that's obvious just from hearing the opening measures. But before we take a closer look, we have to briefly examine a rather thorny issue. Did Bach himself actually compose it? As is so typical of early Bach organ works, we don't have a manuscript in his hand. In fact, the oldest existing manuscript is in the hand of a student, and the copy may well have been made in 1740 or later. And it's often been suggested that the student may well have added such things as Italian temple markings, articulation markings, and some fermatas to that score. Renowned Bach expert Peter Williams doubts the work's authenticity, as does Richard D.P. Jones. On the other hand, Bach authority Christoph Wolff, to whom we have referred so many times in these podcasts, is confident that the work is Bach's. And yet this is thought to be an early work, although exactly how early is part of the debate. Some scholars have actually placed the work quite late. One has suggested that the appearance of a specific note in the pedal keyboard indicates that it was either an early work by Bach or not by Bach at all. Some have suggested it may have been composed first for harpsichord. It does, after all, lack a separate pedal staff in the oldest surviving manuscript. And it's also been suggested that the work may have had its origin as a piece for violin. Let's look first at the stylistic ingredients on display in the opening toccata. It begins on the fifth of the scale, an A, which is doubled in octaves, decorated with a mordant and held by a fermata. Then it plummets down to a leading tone in 64th notes before coming back up to the tonic. By the way, the very fact that these opening notes are doubled in octaves seems to argue against an early date for some scholars. Then another A, decorated by a mordant, is given a fermata, after which we're introduced to a four-note motive one that may sound familiar and which will be playing a major role within a few measures. I said that this motive may sound familiar because something virtually identical to it shows up as an important motive in the Prelude in Fugue in E minor, BWV 533. But before I talk about what happens to this particular motive, I want to mention two other things that happen in the first three measures. After the motive in question, there is another fermata. Then we hear a firm D in the pedals, against which Bach arpeggiates a C-sharp diminished seventh chord. This is actually a common chord in D minor. It's the traditional leading tone chord in that key. But when it's arpeggiated over a D in the pedal, it does create a harsh dissonance. But it's the sort of dissonance that you can readily find in Bach, as well as in precursors like Buxtehude. So, although it's certainly a dramatic gesture, it's not shocking in itself, and in fact resolves fairly quickly to a D major chord. Then Bach rushes through a series of gradually ascending 16th note triplet patterns in both hands, an octave apart, exploding the motive an example of which I just played. He then pauses briefly and then starts up again, moving into the higher octave, leading to another fermata on the dominant. When he picks up the triplet idea again, it's now based on triadic patterns and gradually moves back down the scale. Finally back down to the original starting point, we hear another C-sharp diminished seventh chord against a tonic pedal dissonance. 
a descending scale-wise flourish follows, leading us to yet another fermata on a tonic D minor chord. He now introduces another new idea, a series of 16th notes in groups of four moving gradually up the scale against a reiterated pedal of repeated 16ths in the left hand. I'm going to play that section again. Of course, a toccata is a touch piece, so we expect to hear passages which are technically difficult and flashy, or perhaps more to the point, sound as if they're technically difficult or flashy. You heard at the end of my example how Bach moves on to other fast-moving passages, chordal arpeggios, and swirling 30-second note scale passages, punctuated by a repeated chord progression that descends down the scale to end on dominant. Bach then returns to his triplet-based 16th note patterns, this time not in octaves, but mostly in sixths, all of which sustain another diminished 7th chord on C-sharp for a surprisingly long time before the pattern breaks off and heads to the cadence we've anticipated for some time. But there is another interruption, this time a long and somewhat agitated solo in the pedals, after which we finally settle down to the long-awaited cadence in D minor after which the fugue begins. Before going on to the fugue, we should ask whether we've heard anything so far that disqualifies Bach as a potential composer for this opening toccata, putting aside such things as the unusual doubled octaves in the first measure, the tempo markings in Italian, and the many fermatas, which may easily have been accretions. I believe that to this point the answer is no, and Bach, under the influence of Buxtehude's often dramatic style, could well have composed this piece. The fugue subject is not a particularly novel one, based as it is on the type of figuration pattern that would have been widely employed in Bach's day and a little before it. It is, as some have pointed out, a rather violinistic figure with two layers. It starts with an A, the fifth of the scale, on the second sixteenth note of the beat, and that A is repeated every second and fourth sixteenth note of the pattern as the lower part of the melody moves by step, first descending down to C sharp, moving back up again briefly, and then dropping down a fourth and moving up again. Here's a simplified example. The subject presented first in the left hand starting on A, the fifth scale degree, is answered two bars later up a fourth in the right hand, with a countersubject providing a particularly euphonious figuration pattern, which harmonizes with the subject above it in sixths. A short episode follows, heading towards C minor, based mostly on arpeggio patterns. The new answer comes in in the right hand, back on the original pitch, but an octave higher. Another episode follows, also figuration-based, 
but this time with suspensions built into the pattern. Then a variant of the subject pops up in the left hand, back on D against more prominent suspensions and some rather striking chromatic chords as the harmonic rhythm picks up and the subject is transformed into a descending sequential pattern. In another episode, we move to F major, where the subject reappears again. But no other voice jumps in, and yet another episode follows, a rather repetitive one actually, not terribly interesting until the subject sneaks in again. Let's hear it that far. I'm not going to trace every imitative entrance from this point. We change keys more than once, and the subject returns three times in eight measures at one point, always with some new element added in, a trill perhaps, or a sustained pedal point. At one point, the upper voices drop out completely, and the pedals finally get their chance to play the subject. But it comes at the end of an exposition, and we're soon off to another episode. The pedals actually have the last say on the subject as well, although this time the upper voices are playing moving chords above it, and it's a little more difficult to hear. But just a couple of bars after the pedals quote the subject for the final time, the continuity breaks off, and we find ourselves with a fermata on a B-flat chord we didn't particularly expect. Now, we've heard interruptions before the final chords of a fugue before but what happens in this case is more extraordinary than that. After the fermata, we encounter a new section marked recitativo. Incorporating a recitative section into a fugue such as this 
or even into a toccata section, as some performances refer to this final section of the fugue, would be highly unusual if the piece is in fact an early work by Bach. But this new section is not at all like the sort of recitatives we've encountered in earlier episodes, in Bach's cantatas or Passions, for example. It is, at least initially, a series of 30-second note scale fragments grouped into patterns of four each. But these flashing scale fragments only go on for three measures before being interrupted by slower-moving chords marked adagissimo, chords which include a dissonant chord apparently resolving to the tonic D minor, but then immediately turning around and landing on a diminished chord on G-sharp, which is then sustained by an arpeggio. A ferocious pedal passage then outlines a dominant seventh on E, and for the moment the music seems to be suggesting that we're heading toward the key of A minor. But that new key is never confirmed, and in fact we encounter a fermata on a C major chord. By the way, the stop and start quality of the momentum here, the frequent pauses, changes in tempo, and changes of direction, these things do suggest something of an impassioned recitative, even though the musical ideas involved here have, for the most part, no connection with a traditional vocal style. After the fermata, we hear another blast of 30-second notes, which temporarily suggests C major, but soon migrate in the direction of A minor. But the A minor is being set up only to switch at the last moment into an A major chord, which will, of course, finally bring us back home to the tonic of D minor at the last moment. By the way, during these last measures, the pedals are reintroduced and provide a descending line, which is just about the only thing that provides a sense of forward-moving momentum as we move to the finish. The manuals are alternating rapid arpeggio figures with rhythmic eighth-note chords plowing through the circle of fifths harmonically, and it is only in the last two measures that we get a clear sense that we're moving securely to a final cadence on D minor. Here is the conclusion of the piece, starting after the fermata on the B-flat chord I mentioned earlier. It's quite a piece, even without the final section, which could be considered a last flourish, interrupting the fugal flow before the final cadence, something we've heard before, but occurring here on a grand, perhaps even outrageous scale, or some sort of recapitulation of the Toccata section. Is it in the realm of possibility that Bach composed this work? Of course it is, inspired by Buxtehude's most extroverted style. 
an early work, I think, rather than a later one, because it does, after all, reveal not only exuberance, but even maybe a little self-indulgence, as, in the final measures, it interrupts itself only to interrupt the interruption with such marvelous enthusiasm. And while I'm sure Leitbach was more than capable of surprising us, I think he was a little bit less prone to self-indulgence than his younger self. Okay, we're running a little long for this episode, but I don't want to completely omit a very important category of works written for the organ, that is, those drawing on the great Lutheran chorale tradition. For my example, I'm going to turn to Das Orgelbuchlein, a collection of 46 chorale preludes, BWV 599 through 644, which was put together a little later than the pieces we've listened to so far, probably between 1713 and 1715, but there can be little doubt that some of the pieces had actually been composed earlier, perhaps as early as 1708. This collection was originally planned to contain 164 chorales following the church calendar, beginning with Advent and ending with Trinity, but Bach completed only 46 pieces before turning his attention to other things. The original purpose of the chorale prelude in Bach's tradition was to introduce the chorale to the congregation before they sang it, establishing the key and the melody. Some scholars have suggested that this would be done line by line. Others assume that the entire prelude was performed before the congregation took its turn. These melodies would have been well known to the congregation, of course, offering the composer the opportunity to present them in creative ways. For example, to tailor the harmony to enhance the meaning of the specific text being used, since many chorale melodies were employed for multiple texts, and so the religious meaning, perhaps even the mood of a given text, might be brought out more effectively using one setting rather than another. As Malcolm Boyd has pointed out, the starting point for most of these preludes was a musical representation of some image or emotion in the chorale text. And so Bach and other composers of chorale preludes did have some leeway in the settings they employed. You may recall that Bach was subject to some criticism on that account in his earlier years as a church organist in Arnstadt, when he was accused by the church authorities of introducing curious embellishments and many strange notes into the hymns. We're only going to look at BWV 599. The title in English translation is Savior of the Heathen Come. Here is a straightforward harmonization of the chorale as found in Bach's cantata BWV 62. The text is, Praise to God the Father sing, Praise to God the Son our King, Praise to God the Spirit be ever and eternally. Savior of the heathen come, Virgin Son here make thy home, Wonder at it heaven and earth, that the Lord chose such a birth. Here is the prelude, the first of the Orgelbuchlein collection. 
clearly the melody has been elongated somewhat. A melody originally of eight measures now requires ten measures in the prelude, and the rhythmic relationships between the notes have been modified at times. But the melody is still clearly recognizable, and the original phrase points have been retained. The harmony here is a bit more adventuresome in places. For example, the F-sharp half-diminished seventh on the downbeat of measure two, which delays the expected dominant chord by a beat. But the main difference is the prominence given to new motives which play no part in the original melody. These occur throughout the instrumental accompaniment in the right hand, left hand, and the pedals. But I'm going to focus on only one, and it's a familiar one. I'm going to quote it in the form it takes first, in the first measure. That version of the motive is not quite identical to the one I've pointed out twice before in two different pieces in this episode. The opening interval ascends a whole step here rather than a half step, and that's not a small difference in this context. But later in the piece, a version with an ascending half step does occur. In these versions, or other versions notably similar to these, the motive recurs several times within the 10-measure prelude. It could almost be said to be the dominant motive in the piece, even though other motives are repeated as well, including some important dotted eighth sixteenth note figures in the pedal. Here is the opening of the prelude once again. Sometimes the motives with which Bach chooses to embellish the chorale melody seem to have symbolic significance. One often cited example of this occurs in the prelude BWV 637. The title in translation is, When Adam Fell, the Human Race Was Doomed to Condemnation, where the repeated descending sevenths in the pedal are thought to represent the fall from grace. In the case of Savior of the Heathen Come, there is nothing quite so obvious although the striding quality of the dotted note patterns in the bass line might suggest the inevitability of the Savior's coming. Even within the collection of preludes from the Orgelbuch line, not to mention the many chorale preludes Bach was to compose over the course of his lifetime, there are many different approaches to embroidering these traditional chorale melodies, some even involving canons and other elaborate contrapuntal devices but we're going to stop here for today. In some earlier episodes, we took a look at two of Bach's most important cantatas for Easter. So, for the next episode, we'll look at two from Quasimodo Geniti Sunday, the first Sunday after Easter.